So, as I say, we're back in um, Luke chapter 9. And uh, just to recap a little bit on what we were thinking about last uh, Sunday, uh, we've reached a sort of um, sort of hinge point in the life of Jesus and the, the kind of hinge point in his ministry. By, by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, Jesus will have begun his final journey to Jerusalem. So almost two-thirds of Luke's gospel is concerned with the last days of Jesus' life. It's the great sort of build-up to his arrival in Jerusalem. And uh, just in the the passage we were reflecting on last Sunday, this great hinge point, there have been two great revelations, two huge things that have suddenly been understood or begun to have been understood that, that mark this great transition for Jesus and the disciples. The first thing is the understanding for the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. He's not just another prophet. He's not John the Baptist raised to the dead. He's from the dead. He's not another forerunner. He's the real thing. He's the real deal. And remember that as for all of us, that has been a journey of discovery for the disciples. Remember the storm on the lake. What's the question that the disciples ask when Jesus calms the storm? The question is, who is this? They're working it out. And for us too, as we go through life, we're on a journey of, dis- of discovering who Jesus is. Uh, you know, when I look back to my childhood and growing up, you know, I went to church from, you know, all my life. My dad was a, a vicar, a pastor, so I've always gone to church. But it took me till 17 years of age to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. He was my Messiah. He was my saviour. I spent 17 years kind of working out who he was. And then at the age of 17, I suddenly had this, this revelation. Ah, Jesus is not just a, you know, someone I've read about in a book. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's my saviour. And the disciples have reached that point. There's still a huge amount that they still have to discover, as again there is for all of us. But they've reached this critical moment where Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God, the Messiah. So that's the first huge revelation that they've had. The second huge revelation is that he's not the Messiah that they were expecting. He's not this kingly military ruler like King David of the Old Testament. He's going to raise an army, march into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans and establish Israel as a, as a mighty independent nation. That's not what's going to happen, but that's what they're expecting. So the second big revelation that they've had is that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. As Isaiah predicted, uh, the, say, the, the one who would die in order, before, in, in order to come to glory. And that's what Jesus begins to explain as we reflected on last Sunday. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected and be killed before he's raised to death. So these two things are huge game changers in the life of the disciples. Firstly, Jesus is not just another forerunner. He's the one that they've been waiting for. But he's going to deliver in a very different way from what they were expecting. He is going to go to Jerusalem And he's going to be rejected. He is going to suffer and he's going to die. And it's going to look like a disaster before it looks like victory. And again, as we were reflecting on last Sunday, if that's good enough for Jesus, well, it's good enough for us. As followers of Christ in this life, we should expect the same. We shouldn't be surprised when for the sake of the gospel, we suffer, we're rejected and we're sometimes put to death. That's what may happen as we follow Christ. But 
We have the guarantee, the certainty of resurrection. Remember uh, uh, Luke ch- uh, uh, 21, 22, uh, where Jesus says, this will happen, but not a hair on your head will perish. That's the certainty. So they've had these two great um, revelations, but that's all very well and good. When you're actually involved in that, when you're caught up in the suffering, when you're caught up in this path where it looks as if everything is is not going well, it looks like everything's going horribly wrong, Uh, they need some reassurance. They need some real kind of certainty. And that's, I think, what this episode is about. Where, uh, having had this discovery that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's on a path of suffering and rejection and death before he comes to glory. And Jesus, at the end of the passage we looked at last Sunday, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, now Peter, James and John are going to see the kingdom of God. Uh, About uh, eight days after this, after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. There are the 12 apostles, Jesus' closest circle of 12 friends. And within the 12, there are these three, Peter, John and James, who are kind of his closest friends amongst his closest friends. And they're the ones that he takes on or into really significant moments. So they were there, as you may remember, when Jairus's daughter was raised in the last chapter. Everyone else is sent out and Jesus just takes in uh, the, uh, Jairus and his wife and Peter, John and James. They're the ones who are there when the girl is raised from the dead. They're here with him now. They will be with him again in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is wrestling on the night before he goes to his death, humanly wrestling with the agony of what he knows is to come. Peter, John and James are there with him. They go up onto a mountain to pray. Remember that in the Bible, anything that happens on a mountain is significant. God speaks on mountains. If something happens on a mountain, it's significant. Remember, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray when he calls the 12 apostles to him. Remember, Abraham goes up on a mountain when he takes Isaac to sacrifice him. And God provides a different sacrifice on the same mountain that Jesus will be crucified on. Remember, Moses is on a mountain when the law is given. Remember, Elijah is on a mountain when the prophets of Baal are utterly defeated in the reign of King Ahab in the Old Testament. If it happens on a mountain... Pay attention. It's important. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The the Greek word that is translated flash of lightning, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's a word that it just describes a brightness that is it is kind of it's beyond uh, imagination. It's so bright. Imagine looking on a flash of lightning. That's the only way that they can describe what they've seen. And what God does in this moment is, uh, do you remember um, last year or the year before, I forget what it was, when we were studying the book of Revelation. And over and over again, as we went through the book of Revelation, I would say, what we see in the book of Revelation, it's God pulling back a curtain so that we can see the spiritual reality behind the material things that we see. Which is why when we read the book of Revelation, we kind of read it and we go, huh? What's that all about? Well, it's because God is pulling back a curtain to allow us to see spiritual realities, which are 
of necessity, almost impossible to describe and almost impossible to explain, but they give us a glimpse into the spiritual realities. That's what God is doing here. For Peter, James and John, he's, he's lifting the veil, he's pulling back the curtain so they can see clearly the spiritual reality of Jesus. They can see him in his divine nature. They see him as he truly is. They see him as we will one day see him. This is how we will one day see him. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that there was nothing in Jesus' appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah, looking forward to the coming of Jesus and describing him. And Isaiah says of the Messiah, there was nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus looked, you know, he looked like us. He, you know, he didn't stand out from his peers and contemporaries. He looked like any other bloke wandering around Israel 2,000 years ago. Nothing distinctive about his appearance. But here, God lifts the veil. And Peter, John and James see him in his glory. They see him in his divine nature. And this is how we will one day see him. What a glorious day that will be. When we see Jesus on that day, either when we go to be with him or when he returns and we see him in all his glory. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. These are not ghosts. These are not apparitions. This is Moses and Elijah who appear and speak with Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? Why are Peter, John and James, why are they allowed to see Jesus in this way with Moses and Elijah? Well, they're the two great figures of the Old Testament. Moses is the one through, um, through whom comes the law. And remember, for the Jews at this time and for Orthodox Jews still today, the most important thing is obedience to the law. That's how you get right with God. Through obedience to the law. That's why the people in the Old Testament delight in the law of God. Because it's through obedience to the law that you approach God. It's through obedience to the law that you hasten the coming of the Messiah. Moses is the great lawgiver. And Elijah is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Remember that it was thought that before the Messiah came, Elijah would return. That's why John the Baptist comes. John the Baptist comes and he looks and he sounds a lot like Elijah. And people look at John the Baptist and think, this is one like Elijah. When that discussion is had with Jesus, Jesus says, Elijah has already come. So you have this Moses, the great lawgiver. You have Elijah, the great prophet, the ones who who foresaw the coming of the Messiah, the ones who were preparing the way for the Messiah. And here they are. Talking with Jesus. If this is not a vindication of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, then nothing else is. If you're an Orthodox Jew and you see Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, that gives you certainty that this Jesus, who looks like an ordinary bloke, he is the one you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. Moses and Elijah vindicate his identity. And what did they talk to him about? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I love the way that they, that word is used. It's the same word that um, 
uh, Paul uses when he's uh, writing to his young protege, Timothy, and to Timothy uh, chapter 4, as Paul knows that he's coming to the end of his life. He knows that he's about to die, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his departure. It almost sounds like, you know, the... You know, they're going to Jerusalem to put him on the bus to Samaria. It kind of has that, you know, we think about death as uh, so often with despair and so often with, um, uh, as a hopeless thing because it's, it's so final. Death is so final for so many people. It is such a disaster. And such a tragedy because it seems so final. Well, the language that the Bible uses makes us realise that actually death isn't final. It's a transition. It's not the end. It's a passing from one state to another, which is why Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his departure. Because it's not an end. As Jesus has just told his disciples, he's going to be raised. Paul knows that certainty because he's seen Jesus. Jesus has revealed himself to him. So Paul talked about his own death as a departure. What a, what a wonderful, hope-filled way of drawing near to the end of our lives. What a wonderful way to be able to approach death, not with despair, not with hopelessness, but knowing, well, this is, this, I'm preparing for my departure. I'm not preparing for the end, I'm preparing for my departure to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus in all his glory. And I know it's a departure that I can look forward to because there's certainty about it. And the certainty about it is because Jesus has done something for me that I couldn't do for myself. Jesus went to the cross as a perfect lamb, as a perfect sacrifice. He offered himself for me. Because the offering of myself could never be enough because I'm not perfect. What What a wonderful way to approach death. Moses and Elijah with Jesus in all his splendor. And Peter, John and James are they're earwigging on in on this conversation. They get to hear it. Imagine being able to eavesdrop on this conversation. And even though they, you know, they puzzle over it and they go back to the other 12 and they just, you know, they talk about it and they don't really get it. They don't really get it until after the resurrection, but they've seen it. Imagine, imagine all the difficulties that they are going to go through, all the hardships that they're going to go through. Peter, James and John, as all the apostles are, you know, they're martyred in the end for their following of Jesus. They follow the path that he did of suffering, rejection and death, but... They face all of that with the certainty of knowing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that they were waiting for. There was no mistake. This was no accident. And that's the heart of our Christian faith. That's the hope that we have. That's why we worship here on a Sunday morning, because it's true. It's true. Whatever we're going through in our lives, whether joys or sorrows or difficulties or heartbreak, we don't come to worship because, you know, everything's rosy in the garden. We come to worship because it's true. And Peter, James and John were given a wonderful insight into the truth of Jesus at this moment. Uh, we'll come back to verse 32 in a moment. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, 
They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Imagine if you were there on the mountain experiencing this. What's the one thing you wouldn't uh, want to happen? You wouldn't want it to end. Surely you wouldn't want it to end. What What an amazing experience to see Jesus in his glory. We will never experience anything quite like this but there are moments when I you know when I look back over the years that I've been a Christian there are there are times when I've known just an incredible closeness of the Lord times when I felt so overwhelmed with his love so caught up in his love times when God has spoken to me very clearly where God has spoken to me through uh, through visions, when I've heard his voice, where I felt the, you know, the intensity of his presence. And when you're in those moments, the one thing you, you know, I've wanted is, I, I don't want it to end. I want those moments to last. But actually we can never, you know, that's not the reality of following Jesus in this life. Those moments are incredibly precious. And they're moments when God speaks so powerfully to us. They're moments when God unlock something in us i've i've had experiences of the holy spirit where where god does something very very quickly that in other circumstances would take a long time he he changes touches something in your character changes something in you and you you want you just think i just i wish i could live here all the time i wish i could live with this closeness of the father all the time Uh, but actually we can't those moments are incredibly precious and they They strengthen us and they empower us to stand and be faithful when it's not so easy. And most of the time, it's not so easy. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, you know, make, you know, be faithful, stand firm and not a hair on your head will perish. Most of the time, following Jesus is tough. It is hard work. It invites uh, ridicule. It invites mockery. You kind of put your head above the the parapet. One of my um, uh, children is uh, heading off to university this this week, and and um, when I when I went to university before the internet, uh, you had no idea who was going to be there. You just kind of turned up and discovered a whole bunch of people. Uh, whereas now, because of the internet, you know exactly. You know, you discover a whole lot about them before you you know before you leave the front door because all these group chats are going on and. Um, and so they're, they're already kind of having this discussion about, well, you know, what they've done and, well, what did you do in your gap year? And immediately there's a thing of, well, now I've got to put my head above the parapet because I've, you know, I've got to say I'm a follower of Jesus. So, but, and immediately there's that, well, what will people think? Will people reject me? Because that's, that's who I Am. That's the most important thing about who I am. And he immediately begins to invite that path, suffering, rejection, you know, whatever. Jesus says, stand firm. Stand firm. Most of following Jesus is about standing firm and being faithful because it's hard. But God in his grace gives us these wonderful moments of revelation. Wonderful moments when we just, um, you just, you know in your knower. You just know that it's true. You know that it's certain. 
And God in his grace gives us those, those wonderful moments to sustain us for the long slog, which is most of what it means to follow Jesus. While he was speaking, verse 34, a cloud appeared and enveloped them and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Remember the same, a similar thing happens when Jesus is baptised and the Father speaks from heaven. He says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That wonderful affirmation when Jesus is baptised. And now this wonderful reassurance and affirmation both for Jesus and for the disciples, for Peter, James and John, as he embarks on the beginning of his final journey to Jerusalem, his journey to death. The father speaks from heaven and says to them, this is my son, listen to him. Remember, they had grown up uh, revering Moses and Elijah as the great lawgiver and the great prophet, the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. And now the father speaks from heaven and he says, yes, they were the greatest of the Old Testament. They were the great lawgiver and the great prophet. But now this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. We need to listen to the words of Jesus. We need to take seriously the words of Jesus. That's why as Christians we You know, we we proclaim Jesus as the only way to God, as the only way to the Father, as the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. Why? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. And the Father says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. It's not a popular message. It's a message that increasingly can um, get us into hot water when we fearlessly proclaim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But we don't proclaim it because it's a popular message. We don't proclaim it because it's an easy message. We proclaim it because it's the truth. And why do we believe it's the truth? Because Jesus said it. And why do we believe that Jesus was telling the truth? Because he went to the cross and died and then he defeated death and rose again. And because of the resurrection... We believe Jesus is the truth. And that's why we trust in what he said and what the father said we should do. Listen to him. That's why I love the name of Jesus. That's why I'm proud to proclaim the name of Jesus. That's why I'm proud to proclaim Jesus as the only way to the father. Not because I think it's a good idea. Not because I've made it up. Not because Christians have made it up. Not because it makes me popular. Because it's true. It's true. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Suddenly, the moment's gone. But they were there. They experienced it. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Who's going to believe them? Who's going to believe them? But they know. They know that it's true. And the time does come when they do tell people, which is why... Uh, Mark recorded it in his gospel and why Luke and Matthew had it in front of them when they wrote their gospels. And uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke all record these episodes of um, uh, Peter discovering the reality of who Jesus is, the the transfiguration that we've reflected on this morning. And then uh, the passage that we get to next Sunday when um, 
Uh, They come back down to earth with a bump. Uh, They record it all in the same order because they were there and they experienced it. So just to go back to verse 32, uh, just for a moment. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus's glory. Now, it's kind of it describes their their kind of physical state while this is going on. But I don't think it's stretching too far to uh, just to think about not just their physical state, but actually their their spiritual state during this time that spiritually they've been a bit sleepy. Uh, Remember, they haven't really understood who Jesus is until this moment. They're asking that question when Jesus calms the storm on the lake. Who who is this? They're kind of waking up to the reality of who he is. And then in this moment, and in the moment where Peter has revealed to him that Jesus is the Messiah, they become fully awake. Spiritually, they've been sleepy. But now in these moments, they become fully awake. And actually, for all of us, There's that journey to make. All of us are spiritually asleep until God wakes us up. We're here in this place this morning because uh, we came to a point where we realised that Jesus was who he said he was. And that was a journey during which spiritually God woke us up. You know, as I said at the start, when I was 17 years old, I had that moment of of my eyes being open and seeing Jesus for who he was. But I spent the first 17 years of my life spiritually sleepy and gradually God woke me up. And that moment came when I saw Jesus for who he was in all his glory. The reality is most people around us, most people in our world are spiritually asleep. They don't understand who Jesus is. There are, it's a minority of people in the world who have seen Jesus in all his divine glory and who understand who he is. And one of the things I think we need to be praying for and crying out to God for, one of the things that we are desperate for in our world is an awakening, a spiritual awakening whereby people will see Jesus for who he is. Uh, Some of you will know that this, uh, this little chapel belongs to a tiny little denomination, uh, called the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection, which uh, when I tell people that, normally I'm greeted with uh, blank stares, because uh, it, you know, it, it means nothing. I sometimes think it sounds more like a, a medical condition than a Christian denomination. I'm suffering from the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection. But, um, but, but our denomination, it emerged in the 18th century out of what was called the Great Awakening. It was a time when England was in a desperate spiritual state. America was in a desperate spiritual state. And God uh, woke the church up and he woke the nation up. And the, the, the Countess of Huntingdon was one of those who was awoken by God at the age of 30. She had grown up spiritually sleepy. She, under, she kind of had an understanding about who, who Jesus was. She sort of grew up going to church. And at the age of 30, she had this profound conversion experience and realised actually Jesus is the living God. I need to do something about this. And for the next 50 years, she devoted her life to telling people the good news about Jesus. And she was caught up in a great revival that the Wesleys, John Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, those names will be familiar to some of you, they were part of that revival, that great awakening, which 
spread across England and then it spread across the Atlantic to America. And there was a great spiritual awakening. Well, it seems to me that we are we're kind of back in the spiritual state that our nation was in in the 18th century. And North America is, is in the same spiritual state that it was then. We need, again, a great awakening. That God would awaken us. We are, uh, you know, we are, we are struggling in our world to solve problems and we're trying to do it without God's wisdom. Uh, many of our leaders, our politicians are doing their very best to solve the problems that we face, but they're doing it spiritually asleep and we need an awakening. And that's what I long for and that's what I pray for and I believe that that's what God is stirring in these days. So may we join together in praying for God to stir once again uh, our nation and our world that there might be a great awakening that we might wake up to see Jesus in all his glory and may he give us grace and strength today to be bold in proclaiming him. Give us grace to stand firm no matter what it may cost, and to proclaim him as the way, the truth, and the life. If you're uh, watching online, if you're thinking about these things, if it's not making much sense and you want to explore more, then please uh, do join in with our Alpha course starting online. It's a great opportunity to begin to explore, to understand, discover the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus said he was and why he had come. But for now, let's let's pause and uh, just take a few moments of reflection. Uh, uh, one of the things that the Bible says is that when God speaks, when his word goes out, uh, it does not return empty. And so we trust this morning that as we have read God's word, as we've heard it, and as I've tried to explain and expound it, God is doing something in our hearts. There's a message that he wants uh, you to hear today. So let's take a few moments and allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to ink into our hearts the things that he wants us to take away, the challenges he wants us to receive. Holy Spirit, you are the one who makes the Father known to us, the one who makes Jesus known to us. Holy Spirit, in these moments of quiet, would you speak? Would you speak? Wake us up. Wake us up to see things that we've missed. Give us courage to stand firm. 